Right. Uh, thanks, Doug. Uh, I, I'm Mark Fitzgerald, uh, one of the co-chairs of the forum, and uh, Dana Mentalto is also here on the screen. Uh, she's the other co-chair. And uh, thank you, everybody, for coming and for, for your patience as we were uh, getting through our, our technical difficulties here. Um, with Veterans Day approaching, uh, we're, we're especially honored and happy to have uh, Mark Knowlton joining us. Um, Mark was actually uh, going to be our speaker at, an, at, a, at a live in-person event uh, before uh, the pandemic hit and everything down for COVID-19. Uh, we're, uh, we're happy to have him in this, this alternate uh, and virtual environment. Um, now that we've had about 10 months of the experience, all of us uh, with, with Zoom and figuring out how to do these things. Um, uh, obviously, we've much rather have him in person, but uh, very happy and pleased and honored to have him here. Um, uh, Mark is a uh, finance managing director at State Street Bank. Uh, there, he leads the uh, firm's global client and market intelligence team at State Street. Um, and he's also been an active member of State Street's veteran network. Um, he serves as the chair of the group steering committee there at, at State Street. He's, he's been doing that for two years. Um, and he currently serves as its senior advisor. Uh, he's also a um, uh, Coast Guard uh, commander, uh, having retired after serving 22 years in the Coast Guard. Uh, he graduated from the Coast Guard Academy uh, back in May of 94. Um, he earned his MBA from the College of William and Mary. And uh, he has served in a variety of positions uh, over his uh, two decades plus uh, in the Coast Guard, uh, including his, his final role as the Deputy Commander um, Sector Boston, where he coordinated all Coast Guard missions in Massachusetts, uh, 200 nautical miles seaward and north of Cape Cod. Um, he's had a variety of other roles, including uh, Comptroller uh, C4 IT Service Center. Uh, he also served as a CFO of the Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill United uh, area command. Uh, we're going to be hearing uh, hopefully about some of uh, uh, his adventures there. Um, uh, also served as port operations roles at uh, St. Petersburg in New Orleans, uh, weapons officer uh, in the Coast Guard's Cutter Bear. Um, he's also served uh, two headquarter tours of duty under the Chief of Staff's uh, Budget Execution and Financial Analysis Divisions. Um, and he has uh, uh, achieved many awards, uh, including uh, five meritorious service medals. Uh, Commander Knowlton will be speaking on uh, leadership uh, and drawing from his experiences in, in all of those roles and positions that I, I just described. Um, and we're, we're, again, happy and honored to have, have you here, Mark. So uh, I'll turn the floor over to you. Thank you. And apologies for the, the technical difficulties that were actually compounded by uh, the fact that I, I'm, my house is being painted and I, so I have people um, scratching and, and uh, you know, removing paint from the side of the house and they keep chasing me to different rooms. <laughs> so I, uh, so that, that compounded the problem, but I, I do wanna uh, thank you all for this, um, and for, for everybody attending this event, uh, for the Boston Bar Association for hosting it. I know that the BBA has ongoing pro programs that support veterans. And uh, you know, as a veteran, I, I want to thank you. And uh, I know that uh, many of you also support the Veterans Law Unit at uh, at the Harvard Law School, the, the Harvard Legal uh, Service Center, uh, and other similar organizations. 
And, uh, and, and for that, you know, thank you. Thank you. It is so appreciated. Uh, Jack Regan, uh, whom I think so many of you know is a distinguished and retired partner at Wilmer Hale is a friend to me uh, and a hero uh, because he's invested so much time supporting veterans and for many mentoring so many others to do the same. I think it's, uh, it's good to say why he would do such a thing, why he, somebody like him would spend so much of his time doing that. And I, I think ultimately it's because it's the right thing to do. And, and when people think of the military, they think of leadership. And when, they, and when we think of leaders, I, I think that the best, one of the best traits of leaders is they, they, they speak, they think, and they act uh, based on what they think the right thing to do or say is. And, uh, and learner, I think leaders also learn from their own experience and they try to learn from others. Uh, and, and, and so something you know, to think about is what must Jack have, exper have experienced as a junior officer in the Navy that inspired him to a lifetime of service? There must be something there, I think. And I hope uh, to share through some, some of my own experiences, those kinds of lessons uh, about leadership uh, over a 22 year career in the Coast Guard. I do wanna say a word of encouragement to the young veterans in this group who are you know, engaging in a new journey. And that takes a lot of courage to do that into a new profession uh, for many of you, the legal profession. I do wanna say people do value your military experience. In a way, it, they have some lofty expectations uh, for, for us, of us. My own experience transitioning from the military was, you know, um, unique because I had a, I did have a finance experience in the Coast Guard, and there are many lawyers in the Coast Guard who, who go through the same kind of transition. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I was moving from the the military to a very technical uh, financial services bank, State Street Services, thirty six trillion dollars in assets, and uh, and that was intimidating. Uh, but what I found is that as a veteran, people expect us to have a strong work ethic, to understand leadership, to be disciplined. Usually they expect us to show up on time to a Zoom call, um, <laughs> but sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes things happen, but no matter what, you know, I think they expect us to, to know to do, to do and say, and, and uh, you know, and even think and ha have, have hearts that are motivated by what is right. Um, as veterans, I think you, you have the opportunity to translate your military experience and in ways it's actually a privilege because we're translating that experience and helping to educate people, not just tooting our own strengths, but also helping people to understand uh, the military and what military members bring to the civilian world. We understand concepts like the importance of communications, teamwork, professional development, respect, accountability, pride, and ultimately the pleasure or, or joy of, of doing your work and doing it well, um, having fun. People actually really wanna hear about those things. So I would encourage you to be ready to explain what you learned using non-military terminology in a way that distills the best that you got from the military. Uh, in doing so, you know, you're, you're not just explaining who you are, you're honoring all veterans. And in our, our collective contribution to society, 
you know, the, the mission of the Coast Guard Academy, uh, it ends in saying, in, in, in the service of our country and humanity. And I, I don't know how many people really think of our military as serving humanity, but um, I sure think we all feel that way, that we're not just serving our country, but we're actually serving the good of humanity. And I think that's something that's important to realize. Um, you know, at State Street, um, our Veterans Network um, led five global, will be, have, have led, um, you know, events over the past several years, um, helping to honor, um, you know, the veterans who've served before us. Um, and, and, you know, even recently, uh, so we've, we've earned this reputation of, of, of leadership within the firm. And um, most recently, we've led five events explaining how lessons from the military uh, in crisis can help our global team to cope with the unexpected pressures and the oddness of, of living through COVID. And so we've had an opportunity to speak to thousands of people about, you know, these, uh, about our, our different types of experiences, whether it was in Iraq or whether it was my experience doing search, search and rescue or being, uh, you know, and you know, responding to hurricanes and, um, you know, putting your family in, in other places so that you could respond uh, to an operation. Uh, the importance of, you know, investing time and helping your organization understand the military, I think is valuable and, and, um, and they want it. And in a way, it's a duty, I think. Um, people want, as long as it's done in humility, I think that they're, they're looking for that. Um, you know, we, we talked about the, the importance of investing time in relationships and prioritizing the wellness of the team, psychological and physical wellness, and remembering you know, the primacy of family as good and a valid priority for our team. Those are fundamental to people really feeling valued uh, through the COVID-19 experience. Um, and people were really comforted by that. So again, as long as it's done from a spirit of real humility, translating your military experience, it's not just appreciated, I think people can find it really inspiring. Now, taking time to honor our veterans each year, I think is good and right to do. And so that's what we're doing now. It's enriching for everyone who takes the time to do it. Um, and that's something that all veterans can bring to their civilian firms or organizations like the BBA. Um, I'm proud to work at State Street for lots of reasons, but mostly because our leadership has been committed to doing things because they're the right thing to do. And, uh, but part of that has meant also that State Street's open to listening. Um, to veterans and to implementing uh, policies and initiatives that have been promoted by our veteran community. State Street has invested in programs to support professional development and hiring programs for guard and reserve and for veterans completing undergraduate and graduate school programs. Uh, and four years ago, we realized the need to set, uh, set aside time on Veterans Day uh, to honor those who served before us. Uh, usually we have, we have headline speakers such as Ambassador Burns from Harvard, Next week, we have six virtual events, in, including um, one of the generals from the Mass National Guard, the Coast Guard Admiral in charge of Northeast Operations, and Tra Travis Mills from the Travis Mills Foundation. Uh, our, our focus you know, on all of that, while there is a, uh, an undercurrent of acknowledging the fact that there are veterans among us and that they contribute to the culture of State Street, uh, the, the real focus always is on honoring you know, those who served before us. 
to me, I think of the greatest generation, those who have been called the greatest generation, uh, that stormed Normandy, Normandy, the evil that they conquered. And I think of my own grandfather, uh, who, you know, after graduating from the Mass Maritime Academy, reported to his first ship, the USS Bunker Hill. So you can tell this, he was from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, so he went from Mass Maritime Academy to the USS Bunker Hill. And, uh, and he reported on board that ship the day after an attack that killed 20 crew. And I realized that I wouldn't be here if he had reported to that ship just one day prior. Uh, I think about that fact uh, and, and the fact that I actually served on a Coast Guard cutter, uh, it's a ship, roughly the same size as the Bunker Hill. And I do feel a connection to my grandfather when I think about that. They say everything important you learn or something like that about everything you, important you learn, you learn in kindergarten. And I actually think that um, when you have the experience of, uh, as a military person on a ship, you feel like there's something about uh, an amazing opportunity to learn about leadership and life lessons from your first ship. Um, for me, I was a 21-year-old um, you know, graduate of the Coast Guard Academy uh, when I reported to my first ship. I had the opportunity to participate in a diverse array of missions. And I think it's interesting talking to people in the legal community because the Coast Guard really is so unique in its legal authorities, uh, both as an, you know, armed forces, but also as a, uh, you know, Coast Guard officers are officers of the customs. They're also maritime law enforcement officials. We implement, uh, we, we uh, enforce international maritime law. And, uh, and so uh, as I was thinking through all these experiences, I thought there's this common thread actually of, of, uh, of, legal enforcement uh, through a, a lot of the, the missions that we were performing. Um, and then also there's the unique aspect that even though we're uh, one of the five armed forces, the, the Coast Guard is not subject to posse comitatus. So um, that's, that's actually, I think, an interesting, unique element to the Coast Guard's um, array of um, its toolkit, I think. Um, one of the first patrols I participated in was in the Caribbean responding to a significant Cuban migration crisis that was associated with what I think of as the strange immigration policy known as wet feet, dry feet. Um, if you don't know about it, look it up. It's kind of odd, uh, I think. <laughs> um, in five weeks, my ship uh, rescued 900 people who were trying to cross the 90 mile stretch, the 90 mile stretch of ocean from Cuba uh, to, to Florida. Uh, relying only on um, makeshift vessels uh, made of inner tubes, 50-gallon oil barrels, and, and other other uh, flotsam and jetsam that were, you know, that had no propulsion. They were they were relying completely on ocean drifts. Uh, my role as a deck watch officer was finding them, uh, especially at night. So we were steaming through waters at slow speed, honestly afraid of hitting people. Uh, they they had. Um, uh, many of them had no retroreflective uh, material. Uh, they didn't have flashlights. Um, and, and our job was to, um, first of all, uh, not harm them, but, but secondly, to find them and rescue them uh, because their lives were all in peril. Not only were they at risk of just um, being lost at sea, uh, many of them didn't have enough water if, uh, if the currents weren't carrying, carrying them correctly uh, or if the wind was pushing against the currents. Um, a lot of them didn't have enough food and especially water. So we uh, recovered a lot of people who were dehydrated and in really serious health conditions. Um, 
and I'll say that while it was a joy to, to, re, to save them, it was, um, it was also a very sad thing because we knew that um, most likely we were going to be returning all of them to a large amphibious uh, naval ship that the vast majority of them would be um, interviewed by, at the time, INS, and would then be returned to, to Guantanamo and, and later to, to Cuba, and, and they were fearful. And so for me, as a 21-year-old, actually at this time, I think I was 22, it was, um, it was sad. And uh, I, my mother is, uh, my mom is Hispanic, and so I felt a connection with these people, and uh, I volunteered as an interpreter on on the flight deck where we were, um, you know, keeping all these people, we had to, we couldn't bring them on the on the de- within the skin of the ship. We kept as many as 150, 175 people on the deck of the ship. We rigged, um, uh, you know, housing for them and 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 everything they needed to sur- to survive. A lot of them suffered from diabetes. They were used to having sugar water, and uh, and and so um, I spent time on the flight deck just talking to them, and. And I, I think that it, that was part of my experience, um, learning to be compassionate, no matter you know what the situation. And I think you'll find that in, you know in the Coast Guard with with missions like that one, I think it was Operation Able Vigil. Uh, you'll find the same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll find that same kind of compassion from people across the military. And uh, so, I think that's an important lesson to learn across you know any any mission any. Uh, job we have. And I think even, you know, in, in the legal profession, you see so much of that. You see so much compassion, even for people that may be on the other side. And, and I think that's a really great leadership uh, quality to have. Um, you know, it was that, uh, that same unique combination of legal responsibilities that allowed our team on another patrol as we were um, steaming to the Caribbean for a counter-narcotics operation to uh, seize a shrimping vessel. Um, we, my captain had, had spent a lot of his career in Florida and knew of these exclusionary zones. There were the, one of them was called the Coquina Coral Reef off of Cape Canaveral. And so as we approached the Florida Straits, he suggested that we take a little detour and see if anybody was violating um, those fisheries laws. And, um, and we did. And uh, lo and behold, we, we rigged the vessel. Uh, we rig- rigged our ship for a, a nighttime transit so that we wouldn't scare away anybody. Um, we know that, that um, people, uh, that fishermen and uh, other uh, professionals at sea know uh, what a Coast Guard ship looks like <laughs> from a distance. Uh, even the radar signature sometimes can be quite large. And so uh, we, we rigged the ship to, um, the, so that the lighting would, would look like a fishing vessel and not a Coast Guard ship. And lo and behold, we, we found uh, a fish, a, a, a shrimper with a $100,000 catch and uh, right in the middle of the, of the protected zone. And what I would say there is, uh, this, this makes me think of my, um, my ele- elevator speech. I have, an, I have a a leadership elevator speech, and it goes like this. Leadership is about relationships. Relationships are about respect and trust. Trust is hard-earned and easily lost. Um, and um, I'm going to go back to my notes here because I don't want to give my whole speech, but um, <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, trust is hard-earned and easily lost, and respect 
the, the, the core element of leadership applies, first of all, to people, but it also applies to purpose, process, performance, excellence, and pride. Each one of those, I think it's important to respect each one of those, a healthy respect for each one of those, most of all people. And in, in the case of the fishing vessel seizure, I saw a few of those things and, and learned some of those lessons. First, the respect for process. And I know in the legal profession, that's so important. Um, as we approached that um, shrimp shrimping vessel, we thought we were pretty sure that, that they were in the wrong zone, but we were methodical about our documentation and uh, about being careful to make sure that, um, that we weren't wasting all of our time and, and creating a case that wouldn't stand up in court. And, um, and so I, I thought that was a real, it was incredibly impressive because we really took our time using every tool at our disposal to make sure that we could as, as, you know, as strongly as possible uh, demonstrate and prove that that shrimper was in, you know, illegally shrimping. Uh, the other part of the operation was a little bit weird is we seized the vessel. It was the first time I had ever seen a, a fishing vessel of any sort seized. We actually seized it. Somebody from the Coast Guard had to drive that boat <laughs> into port. And uh, my operations officer, uh, who was third in command essentially of the ship, uh, told the captain, uh, let's, not, let's let Knowlton do it. And, and, and to me, that was a recognition of my, my dedication to professional development. And, and for me, it actually, I had a sense of pride uh, that came from that. And I think it's important uh, to think about that with people that you work with, with junior people that you work with, new lawyers coming out, assigning tasks and letting them have ownership and, and letting them feel empowered uh, and, and not micromanaged, that they can lead a, you know, any kind of task there is a lot of pride that comes from that and a lot of learning that comes from it. You lose some control. And sometimes as a leader, you take it in a chin because sometimes people do things, you know, incorrectly, but that's how they learn. And I think as long as it's a, a measured risk, it's a great thing to do as a leader to put people into that kind of a situation. So I drove this uh, 65 foot uh, fi uh, shrimping boat into Cape Canaveral, which has shoal waters on both sides of the, of the entry to the port. It was actually pretty nerve wracking, but it was a it was a proud proud moment. But I would also say that there was also some sadness to that event. Um, it was sad. We were seizing, and we were this was going to be a seizure that would hurt this man this man's livelihood, the man who was uh, you know shrimping. And so I think one of the important things about the operation also was the dignity that we you know afforded this uh, the owner of the boat, the, the captain of the boat. Uh, we were. In, it was everything was done respectfully and and he was in return very cooperative uh, all the way up to the point that we tied his boat up and uh, and turned him over to the to National Marine Fishery Service. Um, so there are lots of other uh, Coast Guard operations that make me uh, think through some of the 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 value that I, I took out of the military uh, from my 20 years of service. I think of ha uh, being stationed in New Orleans, Louisiana, which was my next tour of duty, uh, where I helped to lead uh, pollution response on the Mississippi River. Massive gasoline spills happen all the time that people don't know about. Um, and uh, and at the time, the the precursor to Hurricane Katrina was actually Hurricane George, almost another Katrina. And the Coast Guard actually evacuated the city of New Orleans. And um, 
And I was selected to be one of the two um, command duty officers for the alternate command post in Baton Rouge. But I, here's the other thing I'll tell you. Remember I said the importance of uh, family and, and respecting that, you know, in the military, we say all the time, family first, we take care of family. And, and even though we had this operation, my, my command gave me the time to drive my wife, who was six months pregnant at the time, with our first child to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I, I, I dropped her off there and then I returned um, for, um, for the operations. And I think what is the third largest port in the country. So the economic impact of shutting down a port like New Orleans can be you know, huge. And the Coast Guard has captain of the port authority, the authority to shut down any port, uh, OCMI authority, officer in charge of marine inspections, so we have authority over all, um, you know, inspected vessels, uh, commercial vessels on our waterways. And we also have um, federal maritime security coordinator responsibilities enforcing the international uh, ISPS and the, and the domestic MTSA, Maritime Transportation Security Act regulations. So uh, a lot of legal authority. Uh, and so that was an important operation, but they still, uh, I felt really grateful that they gave me the time to take care of my wife. Um, when I was in New Orleans, one of the other roles that I performed was learning how to inspect uh, commercial shipping. Many people don't know that any commercial vessel in the U.S. Uh, is inspected by the Coast Guard. And this was a new field for me. And, uh, and, and I learned it from, you know, um, members of the Coast Guard who had technical uh, backgrounds. A lot of them uh, machinist technicians who had been in the Coast Guard for 20 or 25 years and had become uh, warrant officers. So these are people who come up through the ranks, very technical, uh, you know, people. And, and I was more of an academic uh, coming from the Coast Guard Academy and being a deck watch officer on a, on a ship. Uh, it was a big change to go and inspect um, the machinery of commercial shipping. And one of the things that I learned to do, I wasn't a smoker and I don't, I don't like the smell of smoke, but, uh, but my colleagues, almost all every one of them smoked. And one of the things that I learned to do was to just spend time with them. And so I would take uh, secondhand smoke breaks with them. I called them secondhand smoke breaks because they would take smoke breaks all the time. And I would just go and hang out with them. And, and I think the importance of that to me was learning, you know, learning the ropes from the people who know them. And, you know, I don't know um, if it's done in the legal profession, if you, you know, spend time learning what a paralegal does or, or people who are in support roles. But to me, it's so important to, uh, to understand the fundamentals uh, that go into what, you know, your organization is producing. And, uh, and so, so that was, uh, you know, a real lesson learned for me it was my secondhand smoke breaks. Uh, from there, I, uh, I went to, uh, the Coast Guard selected me for graduate school for finance. I went to um, Coast Guard headquarters and became a financial analyst right when 9-11 happened. And one of the things that I really respect, respected about the Coast Guard at the time was the Admiral, uh, Admiral Loy, who actually wrote an article that was um, held back uh, because it, it was, uh, he wrote an article, I forget the, um, where it was gonna be published. I think it was gonna be in Proceedings, uh, Naval Institute Proceedings, which is a serious publication in the military. And uh, it was supposed to be published the day after 9-11 happened. And it was essentially talking about the danger of Osama bin Laden and, um, and the, the real risk of a terrorist attack. 
but that same Admiral, Admiral Lloyd, the commandant of the Coast Guard, had made a principled stand with, con with Congress saying that the Coast Guard either needed more money to operate or that we were going to reduce operations by 15% so that we could operate safely. He called it the dull knife. Again, doing the right thing for the right reason. And what he was saying was that like any dull knife, um, we had people who were getting hurt because we were taking shortcuts. And so uh, we were months away from the Coast Guard's first uh, significant reduction in budget and in operations. And, and then 9-11 happened. And, um, and that changed everything. And um, I was selected not because I was great. It was because all the good people were, were gone and I was the only financial analyst around. So they asked me to help, uh, to help build the Coast Guard's uh, cost analysis and to anticipate what 9-11 was gonna mean to the Coast Guard. And uh, we were shocked to find out that the operations that we, we felt like we were going to need to perform was going to radically increase the size of the Coast Guard. And so, uh, and that actually wound up happening. At the time, the Coast Guard had a budget of around five billion, and uh, within two or three years, the budget um, shot up to eight billion dollars. And so, I was able to be a part of that. We also helped to establish the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, from the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, there was a real concern that everything was going to be couched as a homeland security mission, and so Congress wanted to. Um, to, to really micromanage essentially the Coast Guard's budget. And, but the way they wanted to do it, um, my, my understanding of the way the Coast Guard budget worked helped me to realize that was gonna really impair our ability to perform multi-mission, um, to, to do our multi-mission um, uh, services with the assets that we use. We, the Coast Guard uses ships out of Boston and sends them to the Caribbean regularly. It has nothing to do with where the ship is homeported. But the way they wanted to structure our budget would have impaired that our ability to do that. So I, I take from that sort of the, the principles from um, the book called Getting to Yes in terms of negotiations. So I, I led negotiations with our congressional staffers to help understand what they were trying to get at and then to to design a compromise budgetary sort of framework. We call them PPAs, programs, projects, and activities. It's the budgetary categories that are established as part of appropriations law, by the way, and, and that dictate purpose, uh, time, purpose, and amount in terms of those are the fundamental principles of appropriations law. And, and that actually framework actually stands today. So I actually have a lot of pride in that. And, uh, and, and that was, I think, really interesting. I think the last thing I'll talk about before we uh, you know, give an opportunity for some um, for some questions and answers. Just a couple of other things. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, it was an event. The it was uh, when, when I moved when I went down there to be the chief financial officer. The the response had been in play for um, six to eight weeks, and uh, the CFO of the Coast Guard. We had the Coast Guard had um, overspent our legal authority, our budgetary authority from the oil spill liability trust fund. And the CFO needed somebody who could um, to help prevent that from happening again and make sure that we were, had a steady supply of money from the oil spill liability trust fund to, to fund our operations. So I was asked to go down uh, as a brand new commander in the Coast Guard. And, uh, and I got down there, there were two uh, other very senior officers from the Department of Defense uh, National Guard Bureau finance people, and um, and I guess what I realized from from that experience 
was how important teamwork really is and how important it is communications are. The National Guard Bureau had an understand did not understand the Coast Guard's legal authority for budget. Uh, it's much different than a military budget. And they were ready to pull their uh, 4,000 National Guard troops. And, uh, and, and I, one of the things that I think that's really important is uh, professional excellence, professional development. Investing in that, you know, helped me to explain to those, uh, to those guys uh, and, and, uh, and, the, and the, um, the Army uh, woman who was the colonel there, what we, you know, uh, the kind of authority we had, the, the, the fact that uh, BP would not be able to veto uh, reimbursement to the National Guard Bureau, and we wound up being able to keep those 4,000 troops. All in all, it was 48,000 people in a response and we were calling it a unified area command, but the, the Department of Defense people were telling me, this is a military theater. <laughs> and, and it really was, it was a, you know, several thousand vessels responding. And we treated the oil, um, we used the language as an enemy. It would retreat, it would attack. We had to do reconnaissance using Navy blimps, aircraft to identify where the enemy was and then to attack it. And, and that was just uh, an amazing uh, experience. And, uh, and um, uh, I'm happy to take any questions uh, about that. Um, one of my roles was to make sure that even though um, the responsible party for the spill was sort of treated as a villain, that the, gov the government agencies weren't bilking them and over you know, wasting money um, and expenditure on the spill. So, we detected several multi-million dollar uh, government programs that were performing essentially the same task. And so my job was to try to uh, help minimize that while funding the most important um, you know, activities. And then finally, I'll, you know, I'll come back to Boston. Uh, my, my last tour of duty where I helped to oversee search and rescue operations. Uh, again, an honor to do and great when a search and rescue operation is successful. But one of the things that I think people don't realize about the, uh, the burden of the Coast Guard's role in search and rescue is uh, the reality that sometimes um, we're not able to save people's lives. By the time we're responding, sometimes the mariners are lost. And, um, and the Coast Guard is responsible, not just for the search and rescue, but we also have this authority called um, access, active um, suspension of search. And uh, so the access authority was something that I, um, that I um, earned while I was here in Boston. Um, but what that really means is that our responsibility is to the family of the Mariner to continue that search until uh, every uh, statistical and tool that we have, and we use advanced Monte Carlo analysis to optimize our search and rescue um, operations, that every, everything that could possibly be done realistically to save somebody has been done. And so, then it's that person's authority to, to conduct a briefing with a family um, that explains the search that's been done and, and the decision that's been made to stop the search. And I, I, um, I performed one of those with a mariner up in uh, Maine, a fisherman uh, from Gloucester uh, who was from Maine. And um, again, uh, really impressed by the, just the importance of professionalism and really respect for you know everybody involved, especially the family and, and the fishermen, and not just in in what we did, but in what we said and in how we said it, and in and the, the work that we did. So, I, I just want to conclude. Um, let me see how much time we have. 
with a story. Um, it's about a young member of a squad patrolling the South Pacific, interrogating a suspicious vessel. It was captured. He was delivered hundreds of miles away and imprisoned along with several others. His friends back at sea did everything they could to figure out where he was, and they enlisted other squads to conduct a search. Back in prison, uh, his fellow prisoners conspired to free one another, especially the young new arrival. His young friends, um, they sacrificed all they had to free him, and they knew that he would do the same for them. Ultimately, the prisoners freed their young new friends, just as his original friends arrived in the port to help free him themselves. And uh, the name of this uh, young, young um, member of a squad, his name is Nemo from the movie Finding Nemo. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I tell this story to children uh, because I think it helps to explain Veterans Day. Um, and here's why. I say, I say to them, now imagine you're a Marine Corps or Army soldier defending a village in Afghanistan. Imagine you're an Air Force flight crew delivering tanks to those troops, or you're a Navy sailor on a seven-month cruise to, to the Northern Arabian Gulf fighting a fire in a nuclear engine room, or imagine you're a Coast Guard flight crew conducting nighttime rescue at sea or protecting the port of Boston from a potential terror attack. What do they all have in common? They have, and my kids, my kids go to a Latin school, so um, they all learn Latin. What do these all have in common? They have this common motto, Nemo Residio, Nemo, finding Nemo, Nemo Residio. And what does Nemo mean? What does Nemo Residio mean? It means no man left behind, no one left behind. It's the basic, most fundamental principle behind that movie. And it's what makes our armed forces the strongest in the world. We never leave someone behind. And we know that our squad, our crew, our teammates, and our shipmates will never leave us behind. That concept motivates our forces to sacrifice themselves for one another and for their common mission to serve their country. And that's what's inspired our military to do the unthinkable all over the world, from the bloodbath invasion at Normandy to Coast Guard rescue crews diving into dark, frigid waters to save fishermen right here out of Gloucester. And all of those heroics go on and they, keep, they will keep on going. And everyone in the military knows it. But now imagine a member, you're a member of the military coming home. They've been away from their family for three months, six months, or a year and a half. They have a husband or a wife and children that have sacrificed by giving up part of their family for so long. And then on top of that, that veteran has friends who've lost limbs or even worse, their lives. And they know that those friends would have and indeed might have given up their lives, not only for them, but for their families. And I think that's why, for me, we have Veterans Day. We need to thank members who serve, not so much for them, because they believe in duty and respect, and it's important to them that we, re we pay respect to those with whom they've served and their families who sacrificed so much. Even the lives of their husband, wife, their son, daughter, father, or mother. They need to know that the country they ultimately serve can pay them. Those they've served with and their families with the currency they care most about, and that's honor. It's not money, it's, it's honor and purpose. Sadly, there are some who are left behind despite our best efforts. And they're called, um, you know, um, prisoners of war. 
and, and we also honor them on this day. And, and I think that's why, and one of the reasons why it's so important for our, our, the people in the military and for our veterans to know that when they come back home or when they leave the service, that they'll be honored. And, and, and so I think we, as a society, all benefit from that. Um, so that, uh, that concludes my, um, my remarks and I'd be happy to take any questions with the small amount of time we have left. Thank you so much, Mark. That was a fantastic uh, uh, presentation for us and, and ended on a, on a wonderful note, reminding us all about, uh, about the meaning of Veterans Day. Um, I, I have a, a quick, actually, two-part question. Um, you know, you've, you've seen a lot um, in all your experiences, and, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, one, one thing, common thread, it seemed like you, you were... Um, uh, you, you, for whatever reason, ended up in places where uh, you, you had to, to be responsive or be part of a response to some some crisis or some some event that happens. And you know, in our um, uh, civilian jobs, uh, we uh, I, I find at least that um, that that people are are uh, uh, hoping that there will never be a crisis. <laughs> right, that, that you don't have that, you know, that client that has the really big issue, or the you know, you're kind of hoping that these these things don't happen. Um, and you know, in the armed forces, you're also hoping that, but you, you realize that's not a reality. So you know, you you become um, conditioned and trained, I think, uh, to be able to um, look at a crisis and and just jump into it and, uh, yeah. and know that it uh, needs to be resolved. At State Street, how does that, I mean, do you see in your civilian job uh, the benefits of having that experience uh, and um, and how does it help you and how do you see it help, you know, the, the veterans in the network at State Street uh, that, that you interact with, um, if you could comment on that. Second part of the question is, mm -hmm. is with respect to uh, Deep Horizon. Um, which actor portrayed you in the Mark Wahlberg movie? <laughs> uh yeah I, I i i don't remember his name but it was a it was really good a really good actor <laughs> yeah they didn't uh they didn't cover the coast guard response it wasn't an exciting part of the uh the operation uh we were in a, a class a building in downtown new orleans uh but um good really great question uh <laughs> to answer the first part of the question I think yes, at State Street, it, it's definitely valued, and it's the same kind of value that that in, uh, you know, there's there are incredibly stressful uh, things that happen in any environment, any work environment that's you know important, and I'm sure at a law firm that happens, I'm sure in a um, you know a district attorney's office that happens, uh, it certainly happens on a ship, and and it certainly happens at State Street. And I think that the thing that people value out of all of that, and certainly the thing you learn about in in the military, you know, and I think in a special way, is how not to overreact, how to remain calm in a difficult situation, even how to keep a, a sense of um, you know a tempered but healthy sense of humor. And I think the reason the military is particularly good at that at training that is because we train uh, for those situations. And so we're used to, uh, you know, simulating 
stressful environments. And so when they happen, uh, we're, we, we know that uh, there's a lot of value in being sober-minded and calm and, uh, and uh, you know, working the problems. Like uh, I, use, I used that terminology recently with my team in India. Uh, they had a very difficult um, analytical problem. And I said, it's like Apollo 13, just work the problem, just work it, it's, you know? And, um, and I think that that's encouraging. For COVID-19, for the COVID-19 coordination, they actually picked two former uh, military academy graduates to lead that. Uh, a Naval Academy grad um, was the overall lead for the return to office coordination, preparing 175 locations globally for, I think, 47,000 people to come back to work. And then I was actually selected to be to lead the metrics um, uh, PMO. And I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, when I took over, um, we were we were tracking metrics. We didn't have any standard metrics. And we didn't have any situational, you know, in, in the military, we have something called situation reports for any kind of a crisis response. So I put in place sit reps. And uh, for those of you who are old enough to have watched the movie War Games um, or any other movie with sort of war in it, there's always something, something called DEFCON, defense condition, right? Well, we have, you know, in my experience in the Coast Guard, we have port conditions and hurricane conditions and uh, homeland security conditions. And it's a way to always maintain situational awareness as to where you sit on a, on a risk threshold. So they asked me to put to uh, to take that role. And, and I actually created the resurgence condition framework that State Street now uses to assess uh, locations. And, you know, even today, we just one of our locations in Germany went from Archon 2 to Archon 1, resurgence condition 2 to resurgence condition 1 based on, uh, on um, transmission metrics. So uh, having that cool head having that um, understanding that the priority of uh, maintaining situational awareness and, and recognizing the, the reality of the fog of war, right? There is that when, when stressful events come up, uh, knowing intuitively that people are suspect to uh, suffering from the results of the fog of war, uh, that the, you know, the emotional reaction, I think that there's a lot of value in that. Good question.